This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that changed the world and changed us. Please look down on your phone below where you just scrolled to find our episode and keep on scrolling till you hit the place where you can give us five stars. It matters in podcast world. Also, please tell a friend about us. I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. We're here in Memphis, Tennessee, starting up school, and uh, teachers across the city are pulling out those great beloved classics that have been synonymous with school teaching from what feels like the beginning of school or, or time. And, uh, and so, as perhaps the most iconic of all the classics today, we begin our series on Romeo and Juliet. Now, Christy, this might be the only Shakespeare play I ever read in school that is... If I read it, I can't really prove that <laughs> I did, but it sounds familiar. I bet you did. Uh, and you're talking just about like every single person. It's the one story people actually know, although most don't know if they actually read it or not. And most people would say they don't really like reading Shakespeare at all. Here's a stat for you. Uh, on any given year, there are about 410 professional companies performing Shakespeare, and some of those will be performing for the whole year, according to the World Shakespeare Bibliography, and uh, that's a lot, especially when you think that these are mostly the same plays over and over again, you know, he hasn't written anything new in a while. No, we only got the 36. (laughs) That's right, Uh, but let me put that number to you in another way. If you spread out the performance hours in a row, which really isn't how it works, but you know, just to give you the image. Uh, there's a Shakespeare performance on average going on every hour of every day, everywhere, always. And that's kind of intriguing, really, because if you ask people if they sit around reading Shakespeare, everyone will say no. But if you look at what people are performing, what they're watching, what they're paying money to see, Shakespeare is still very, very popular. In the summer, he's performed in parks all over the world. His plays sell out everywhere. Even here in small town, Memphis, Tennessee, we proudly have the Tennessee Shakespeare Company, and it has its own theater. It works in our schools every year. And last year, even with COVID, there was over 20 performances, and the actors performing Romeo and Juliet worked in classrooms with over 4,000 students across our city. So Shakespeare moves everyone, and among the Shakespeare greats, Romeo and Juliet, perhaps more than any other, uh, is moving. I I wondered about that myself, and and I googled how many Romeo and Juliet movies there are. Um, A number I didn't actually find, uh, but the IMB has cataloged at least 
1934. Um, the two most popular being the one produced by Frank Zeffirelli in 1968 and followed by the one that came out in 1996 starring um, Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Oh, Gaines. yes. That's yes. the one everyone remembers. <laughs> but, of course, we can't forget there are countless other movies and plays based on it, like West Side Story, which is set in New York, of course. It's musical, but it's basically the same story. And I would like to point out that I played in the theater orchestra for production of West Side Story. And reading that score was very challenging. <laughs> and that's probably when I found out that West Side Story was a takeoff on Romeo Oh, you didn't even... <laughs> yeah, I was slow to the, to the party on that one. Oh, my. So, any theories about what makes Shakespeare so popular and what makes Romeo and Juliet the most popular of the popular... If you agree that it is. Well, it's definitely up there. There are a couple of challengers and competing lists. Of course, there's Midsummer's Night's Dream and Hamlet. But that with Romeo and Juliet are obviously the most produced plays that he ever wrote. And as far as to why, well, you know, of course, I have my theories. (laughs) But I will say that his popularity isn't universally accepted, even among English teachers. I was at... The AP reading last year, which is this big deal where we read essays and grade for the college board. And the lady who was sitting at the table with me grading, she and I got in a discussion about this very thing. She's super accomplished, very successful, but she doesn't even teach it in Shakespeare anymore. She thinks it's too hard for modern students to understand, and it's just not a good use of her time. There are better things to do. As for my part, I respectfully disagree with that view. Yes. I adore Shakespeare, and I will make the case that he's worth it. He's worth tackling all the big words. Most of the reasons I love him have to do with the so many great things that he says about life. His lines are just amazing. But that's really not the only reason people love him, that's for sure. There's a couple of other reasons. I'll just throw out a few easy ones. For one thing, theater people love him. They love performing and often reinventing Shakespeare. There are a gazillion ways you can interpret his work, and it's always appropriate. It's always relevant, and the characters are easily adaptable. It's just about context, and they never really lose their essence. Let me tell you what I mean. Just Romeo and Juliet, for example... I've seen the traditional one several times. I've seen one in modern language. I haven't seen one where Juliet was in a wheelchair. I saw one where all the characters were drug heads. Uh, I saw one with a happy ending, if you can believe it. And all of them were exceptional, enjoyable. You can't really plagiarize a Shakespeare play, and not just because it's 400 years old and he's not around to sue you. But he copied the stories himself. You could say that, Shakespeare does not accept the concept of plagiarism. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> and you, you just don't get the impression he would, he would care, and there's a freedom in that. One time, my dad and I, because uh, he, as you might can tell, he's a Shakespeare yes. uh, lover. Uh, we went to Nashville to watch a Shakespeare in the Park event that, that year. It was on Midsummer's Night Dream, and it had a Western theme going on and all kinds of crazy musical things and it was totally legit and i have to say it's probably my favorite shakespeare performance to date it wasn't a parody on the text it wasn't a travesty it was actually the genuine text the traditional language it was a celebration of his idea but it was looking at it and exploring it from a different perspective and there's just endless numbers of ways to do that which makes it kind of fun you never know what you're gonna see yeah. Uh, one time you dragged me to see a production of King Lear. And uh, as we're watching it, there's a line that comes out of the play where he says, sharper than a serpent's tooth is an ungrateful child. And like, I about fell out of my chair because my mother quoted that line to me <laughs> as a child. For I had no idea she was quoting Shakespeare to me all those years. <laughs> a lot but, of people don't. Well, for the non-literary person, uh, what do you have to say about the fact that the language is actually difficult? And your friend was not wrong about that. Uh, Is it really enjoyable if you have to study it or know about it ahead of time for it to be fun? Because for me, that's a drawback. (laughs) Well, it is a problem, no doubt. (laughs) But I would say uh, there's a fun, nerdy side to the language. And the more you know about the play the more fun the lines are and the play can actually be. But I think uh, we can agree, if you would give it a chance, 
that if you watch a Shakespeare play, you're not watching it for the suspense or the surprise ending. And you can understand it even if there's a, not a lot that you don't you know, understand in terms of the language. Uh, there's slapstick humor, there's action, there's double entendres for those who enjoy a good sexual innuendo from time to time. Shakespeare literally wrote for all the audiences of his day and lots, I'd say probably the majority of the people who watch Shakespeare were literally illiterate. <laughs> so it wasn't a cultured thing for them. And But there were, you know, there was that class of cultured nobility who watched it as well. So he had that in mind. And it seems really, especially if you think about the content of the play that plays, that people really haven't changed all that much in 400 years. We all can fit somewhere within the range of what is an acceptable audience for Shakespeare. And that's kind of fun, too. It's nice to know that there are lines that are just as true today as they ever were in the 1590s, if you think about it. So Shakespeare... Asks questions about love and death. That's what we're going to see here. He says things we say or think, but he says them in a pretty way. And I know that sounds somewhat unbelievable, but I don't get tired of teaching Shakespeare plays, and mostly it's for the lines. I don't teach them every year, but years that I do, I have to read out loud the same lines six times a day. And I really enjoy it, and I'm not that intellectual, I promise. Uh, it's just the words can move you. They're, they have layers, and I've seen them move students from small-town Arkansas, age 14, all the way to sophisticated doctoral professors at the Globe Theater. So <laughs> there is a range. There is, and I want to say a thing about Shakespeare's lines. One of the greatest things I've ever seen is the Shakespearean insult daily calendar. <laughs> I mean, when I spent a year reading the insult lines from his plays, I thought, this is amazing. Anyway, uh, but I do have to be honest. I mean, I'm reading these with you for the first time, and since we're just getting started, you're going to have to make this case for me. And, and although you keep trying to persuade me to stick with the original text, I am very thankful <laughs> For the good people at No Fear Shakespeare, uh, they Americanize it enough that I can grasp it. I know. It's a little bit of a sacrilege, but I think I can bring you around. So before we swing all the way down to Verona, Italy, and the land of love, and I know we need to hurry because we need to get to the text, I do think we should take a slight detour and talk briefly about Shakespeare. Peter's life, which we did not do when we read Julius Caesar, because we were busy talking about Julius Caesar's life. So without getting too into the weeds, give us a little bit of the life and times of William Shakespeare, if you don't mind. <laughs> uh, honestly, it's super surprising, uh, considering how legendary he is, that he's really a mystery. Some people think he didn't even actually exist. I know, that's there is that conspiracy, but I just don't buy it. And the main reason is... My father and I, which I told you, is a lover of Shakespeare. Well, we, he took me one time on our little Shakespeare vacation, and we went to London, we went to the Globe, but then we went to Stratford-upon-Avon, and we saw the house where he was born in. We saw the fancy house. Well, the house isn't there, but we saw where it used to be that he lived in as an adult. We saw the tone. We saw the home where his daughter lived, and this really proved it for me. We saw his tombstone. I left thinking, I think he really was a living person. Well, I hope so, because in the study of my ancestry, I have, oh, a, no. I have a link back to Stratford-upon-Avon. Oh, you do? Upon, yes, I'm a descendant of uh, an individual that was a godparent to his children. Well, there anyway, you go. <laughs> if he even existed at all. He existed. There's no doubt. Okay. Uh, well, there is a conspiracy theory, uh, but I'll let people Google that. The fact remains that we know very little of any certainty about this man except for a few basic historical documents. And we know that he was born on April 23rd in um, 1568 in a small town called Stratford-upon-Avon uh, to a man named John Shakespeare, a relatively successful wool dealer, and to a woman named Mary Arden, who supposedly was of noble birth, but that's all we know about her. 
Uh, we don't know much about his education, his youth, um, or childhood. And there is one scandalous rumor that he got into trouble for hanging out with some local hoodlums and got into <laughs> trouble for deer stealing. Oh, dear. Ah, that's a pun. <laughs> so if you can steal a deer, I have respect for you. Apparently, he wasn't good. He got caught. Uh, <laughs> oh, well. Uh Maybe it's an indication that he's as mischievous as some of his characters. Probably so, because you know what we like to say, <laughs> writers write out of their experience. Okay? Uh, we do know for sure that he married Anne Hathaway before he was even 18. Um, he, a girl seven years older than he was, but we don't know for sure if there was true love. Yeah, there's been a lot of speculation that... Uh, they didn't have true love, and I have my doubts myself. In his will, he left her his second best bed. <laughs> it's an insult. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound nice. And, of course, there's the famous lines from Twelfth Night where he says, Let's steal the woman, take an elder than herself. Then he goes on to explain it. So where's she to him? So sways she level in her husband's heart. For boy, however, we do praise ourselves. Our fancies are more giddy and unfirm. In other words, the men's fancies are giddy and unfirm. More longing, wavering, sooner lost and worn than women's are. Then let the love be younger than thyself, or they affection cannot hold the bent. Seeming to say you'll get tired of the older women. It's quite insulting, especially to us modern types. <laughs> especially. <laughs> uh, and, and there's a detail that she lived in Stratford and he in London for most of the years of their married life. True, but he did go back every year. And when he got rich in 1597, he did build her a really nice home there. So who knows? It's fun to speculate. And I don't think Shakespeare would mind at all. In fact, I know he'd probably really love the rumors. At least we get that impression. Oh, he would love the rumors for sure. And, uh, it's just amazing that a man who enjoyed the favor of Elizabeth I and then James I, never mind many other extremely important people, would have such little documentation about his life. Uh, his signatures on a couple of deeds, on a mortgage, uh, on his will, and that's about it. We don't really even know exactly what year he retired uh, we do know that he died on April 23rd, his birthday, ironically, in 1616, um, but not even really of what he died of. Uh, the record says this, Shakespeare, Drayton, and Ben Johnson had a merry meeting. <laughs> they had a merry meeting. And it seems drank too hard. They drank too hard. <laughs> Shakespeare died of a fever there contracted. A fever produced by drinking too hard. <laughs> I don't know if a modern doctor would have given the diagnosis quite the same way, but Indeed. it is kind of funny and ironic that a man who made so many people uh, happy died perhaps himself of happiness. If you want to think of it that <laughs> Merriment. way. <laughs> it was his life calling. And if you want to look at it that way, if you go to Stratford, which is a darling place to go, you can visit the church and visit his grave. It's actually a really nice space and a nice church for a little village. There's a flat stone and marks the spot where he's buried. And there are four lines that supposedly he wrote. And he says this, good friend for Jesus sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be he that spares these stones and cursed be he that moves my bones. So obviously he didn't want to be moved around after his departing. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, it seems no one uh, wants to challenge or risk getting involved with that Shakespearean curse. And there was some discussion at one point of moving him to Westminster Abbey, but that didn't happen. At one point, um, they were renovating a church and uh, there was a place where the earth caved in and created this big problem because someone could have gotten to the bones and no one wanted to risk getting the Shakespeare curse. <laughs> so uh, the sexton watched over the hole in the ground for two days until they could finish the repair and seal the ground properly and not let Will get out. <laughs> Kind of a funny story, but it speaks to the allure, the romance, the myth, the aura that is Shakespeare. So I guess we've made an, enough ado about his life. Uh, and let's get on to the play 
Romeo and Juliet actually is one of his earlier plays. It's interesting for us to watch, you know, if you, if you look at the order of which he wrote his plays, that his plays really do kind of grow up with him. His earlier plays are light, lots about love. They tend to be more fun, more comedy, except Titus Andronicus is a very <laughs> tragic play. But I don't know if, I mean, there's a bit of humor in that too, because literally they murder someone and put their body in a pie to be eaten. So... I don't know how you take that too <laughs> seriously. Yeah, you thought that was thought of like a Criminal <laughs> Minds episode. Well, almost all of his first 20 play, 25 plays are comedies. So it could have been that he was just growing up and getting more serious and maturing. But what well, we actually see that in his personal life, he experienced some real tragedy. And a kind of shadow fell on him, especially when his son died. So the same man who says, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Later on in his life, questions existence himself with to be or not to be. That's the question. His greatest plays, his most mature plays, of course, are the great tragedies. Othello, Hamlet, King Lear. He wrote all of those, of course, later in life. But Romeo and Juliet doesn't fall in that group. It's an early play, and it's far lighter, even if it is a comedy. It's actually a comedy. It's a tragedy. But my point is, it's kind of a half comedy. And I think many scholars agree it has this comedic feel, feel to it until about halfway through, and we see Tybalt's death. And then the kind of lightheartedness that characterized the first half of the play goes away. Well, of course, um, you know it won't go another way. I mean, I'm not sure there's a story that's more recognizable. We all know it's going to end badly, and even if those of us who slept through most of the classes when we read it, everybody knows the story. <laughs> so true, but it doesn't take away from any of it. In, in some sense, it's kind of comforting and unstressful to know that they're going to die at the end. I mean, hmm. there's a sense that that's true. There's nothing worse, if you think about it, than you're watching a show, you get really attached to, to a character, you fall in love with them. This happened to me when I watched Downton Abbey. Uh, and then the author breaks your heart by killing off Matthew unexpectedly, mm, which is mm. exactly what happened in that in that series. So we can detach from getting too absorbed in these two teenagers Shakespeare writes the play in such a way that even if you didn't know the story beforehand, you will know the story before the play begins because he gives us a 14-line spoiler right at the beginning that tells you everything that's going to happen before the very first characters walk into the scene. Uh, which to me seems a little risky for a writer. I mean, was it different back in the day? Did people like to know the ending like the Greeks did? I mean, because most of us get really annoyed <laughs> when a movie trailer gives away the whole movie. In fact, I always think if a movie producer thinks uh, he needs to tell you the whole movie in a trailer for you to see it, then the movie must not be worth watching. I agree with that. Uh, and that is a good question. And of course, uh, the prologue, which was you're talking about, Gary, Shakespeare does tell us the whole story, and we're going to read it in just a minute. But even if there not had been a prologue, people did know the story. It was a, a well-known story even at the time. The original creator of the story was an Italian man named Matteo Bandello, but Shakespeare's source was not the original Italian writer, but an English translator who translated things from Italian to English by the name of Arthur Brooke. And he had written this as a popular poem called The Tragical History of Romeo and Juliet. And he published it about 30 years before Shakespeare wrote his play version. And there were other versions besides that one. So that aside... Uh, there seems to be, besides just the fact that people really already knew the story, there is, in fact, thematic reasons for telling us the whole story before you let us watch the story. And a few of which I think we really should have in our minds, because Shakespeare wants us to have certain things in our mind before we read this particular play. So to set up the story... I want to talk about, before we even get to the prologue, I think we need to understand what's the difference between a comedy and a tragedy. So obviously, 
comedies and tragedies are different because one ends in death and the other in marriage. But there's a second difference, and I think a more important difference between comedy and tragedy. And we all feel this, but we don't actually think about it or pay attention to it. In a tragedy, the person who experiences the sad thing is sympathetic to us because in some way we have to see them as better than us. They are of noble birth. They make hard decisions. They overcome biggest, bigger obstacles than maybe we can do. And we feel sad because they don't deserve the kind of thing that happens to them. They're better than us. The author has to build up the character so that we feel like they should not have died. Uh, we think of this, the best example that I can think of would be not a play, but uh, the story of Abraham Lincoln, which is actually real life. Why was that so tragic? Why was it a great tragedy? Well, because he was a great man. He had just done a great thing, and his life was cut off too short. It's tragic. So he's noble, and the protagonist must be noble. It's not a tragedy if bad things happen to bad people. Or to put the words as Catherine Zeta-Jones does in Chicago, it's not sad if they had it coming. (laughs) (laughs) So let's think about a comedy. We laugh in comedies because we, as viewers, are better than the people in the play. And it's fun to laugh at them. We don't feel bad about it. One of my favorite comedians is Jack Black, and he does ridiculous things. And there's a sense that he does things that I've thought about doing. I might have done, but not in one of my better moments, the moments that I don't want to tell anybody about. And that makes it funny. Will Ferrell, your favorite comedian, (laughs) does exactly the same thing. He's absolutely ridiculous. And in some sense, every viewer finds him funny because they can see themselves in the character that he's creating for us on the screen. So but yet we're still better than than Yes, you're better than the goofballs that he's, you know, p- portraying in Talladega Night or <laughs> any of the other onslaught of goofy films. Shakespearean versions of Talladega <laughs> Nights. Oh, can you imagine? Ricky Bobby. Yes. Well, what's unique about Romeo and Juliet is Shakespeare makes half comedy, half tragedy at the beginning of the play. And pay attention to this, because Shakespeare goes to a lot of trouble of pointing this out specifically with the character of Romeo. These two, Romeo and Juliet, are not better than us. I know that they're of noble birth, but they're not, you know, big nobility people. Uh, The first scene of the play, we're laughing at Romeo. In fact, not just us. The other characters are laughing at Romeo. He's ridiculous. He's a love-stricken teenager doing what we've all done in our worst, most embarrassing teenage moments, pining after the wrong girl. His friends make horrible fun of him, and the jokes are bawdy. They're inappropriate. So in a sense, we're better than he is, and we can laugh both at him and later on at Juliet for being so impetuous. It feels silly and something we've all experienced. Juliet, although it's more subtle, has been created also in this really extreme version. One thing to find interesting in Arthur Brooks' original version of Romeo and Juliet, Juliet is 16. Most of the versions of the day that Shakespeare was modeling his play after have her at 18. But when Shakespeare creates his virgin, he lowers her age dramatically, making this character very relatable. And she's sweet. She's innocent. She's endearing. But it's also kind of sweet, funny when they fall in love, as 13-year-olds might. However, by the end of the play, things have changed. And these characters, in some sense, have found their nobility. They've grown up. There's something heroic inside of them. They're forced to grow up through choices and circumstances of some of which were out of their control. And they didn't do very well. We'll talk about that later. But they did pursue the right kinds of things, maybe better than other people older than them were pursuing. And I'll show you what that means and how it's been inspirational when we get there. So I think it's worth thinking about that this is half comedy and half tragedy. Now, Romeo and Juliet, as you pointed out, is one of the few Shakespeare plays that has a prologue. There's only six plays that do. And Juliet and Juliet and Romeo and Juliet is the only one with the big spoiler at the beginning. Most of the prologues in Shakespeare plays are setting up the scenes and 
uh, getting you prepared to see the story, not telling you the story. So this prologue is unique even for Shakespeare. And I think I've talked enough. So (laughs) I'm going to pass off the word to the Bard of Avon to let him set up the rest for us. Okay, but one more thing. Why do we call Shakespeare the Bard? (laughs) Where did that come from? Well, just so you know, it is a little contested. The Scots will tell you that Robert Burns is the Bard. But we have a podcast for that. But uh, to talk about, he's definitely the Bard of Shakespeare. Bard of Shakespeare. The Bard of Avon. But Avon is a little place, and he's outgrown it. There's a man, an actor by the name of David Garrett, who said this, For the Bard of all Bards was a Warwickshire Bard. And people have pointed to that line to say he's the poet of all poets because bard means poet. So maybe that's where it came from. But honestly, it's another one of the mysteries. (laughs) More myths. (laughs) Okay. Well, read for us the prologue. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventure, piteous overthrows, do with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death marked love, and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but for their children's end not could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage." The which, if you with patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. Well, there's a lot there. In fact, all the major themes are buried in that prologue, and we'll take those one episode at a time. But the first thing to say is that the prologue is written as a sonnet. Now, that means a lot of things, and I'm sure we'll do more podcasts on sonnets in general. And if you're interested, we already did one on Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. But what to take away for here is sonnets are really regimented. There's lots of rules that you have to follow to write a sonnet. And that's one thing that connects them to what this play is about. For starters, remember how you just called Shakespeare the bard? Well, he considers himself a poet. And remember what poets do? They use structure, they use punctuation, and they use all the details of every word to lead you to their main idea. Well, this play is about love, like sonnets are about love. Sonnets are from Italy, by the way, just like our play. That might be taken about too far. But Romeo and Juliet is about the rules of love. But it also is about what happens when you break the rules of love. So if we just take a cursory look at the words, look at all the contrasts in this sonnet. There's a lot about love, but there's also a lot about death. Look at that. There's a grudge and misadventure, a death-marked ludge, rage, toil. But under the, you know, all the bad things that you see, all the words, negative words that are in the sonnet, it's still a sonnet. So it's still about love. The word love itself is uttered 128 times in this play. I will say mostly by Romeo. Romeo. (laughs) (laughs) But Juliet carries her fair share, and there's no doubt. Uh, This is a play about the nature of love. And not just any kind of love. We're not talking about love of country or love of God or even mother's love. We're talking about the good stuff. Eros, to use the Greek word, romantic love. Another point to make, just talking about structure, is that this whole play, the whole thing pretty much, is written in blank verse. What uh, does that mean? It means it's written in iambic pentameter. So just like the sonnet, ba-dump, 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 two households, both alike in dignity, ba-dump, 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 ba-dump. Pretty much every single dang line in this play has 10 syllables, and every other one, it's accented. The whole thing beats to the beating of your heart. (laughs) (laughs) It's very sweet. It's also sweet that this play is set in the beautiful Italian city of Verona. What a romantic setting. Tell us about that. Uh, Of course, uh, uh, I'll tell you about it, although you're the one who's been there. 
Um, it's one of the most romantic cities in the world, and it's a setting for not one, but two Shakespeare plays. Uh, even though the town isn't all that large, uh, today a quarter of a million people call it home, and about the size, same size as Venice, if you want to compare it to something. Uh, also, like Venice, people flock there literally by the millions. It's uh, in northern Italy, about halfway between uh, Milan, a larger city, and the center of the fashion world, and Venice, the city with all the canals, another one of the world's most romantic places, as well as another setting for a different Shakespeare play, which is called A Merchant in Venice. Uh, but what's fun about the whole Verona thing is that the town has a kind of magic about it that in part has to do with Romeo and Juliet, although even without all the magic of Romeo and Juliet, it has its own amazing story. There's actually a, a very large Roman amphitheater there, and it's fairly well preserved. And um, they have uh, outdoor operas there every year, and as many as 15,000 people can fit inside. But of course, what it's most famous for, at least for Americans, but I think for lots of people around the world, is Juliet's house. Well, I have to be honest. That's why my daughters and I wanted to go there. We'd seen that lovely movie, Letters to Juliet. I had no idea before watching that movie that there were people out there who wrote Letters to Juliet, nor did I know that there were women who wrote you back. It's one of the fun things about humanity. It's so kind, and it's very romantic. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which is even more incredible, considering that Juliet is not even real. How can she have a home when she's not when she's a fictional character? And she never lived at all. But people write her, and and she writes them back. And I say that with air quotes. You can uh, you can see her balcony, her courtyard, and even her tomb. Uh, that's pretty impressive for somebody who didn't even exist. Well, you need to walk that back just a minute. Matteo Badello, the originator of the story, was a monk from the late 1400s, which we don't know a lot about him, but we do know that most of his stories were actually true. So I'm saying she's real. And if you take the Verona walking tour, they'll tell you just as much. There's a family named the Del Capelli family. They had a daughter and a residence in Verona in the 1300s. And I know that I might be being a bit romantic about it, but I kind of bought the narrative. So I'm sticking to the story, and I kind of think she was real. <laughs> okay, well, that argument can be saved for another day when you have nothing better to do. Well, fair enough. Um, now, I know I'm not a Shakespearean scholar, and I'm talking out of my uh, area of expertise, but another thing I noticed in the literature is that Shakespeare's tragedies are mostly political. I mean, think Julius Caesar and Hamlet and uh, King Lear and Macbeth and all those Henrys and Richards. Uh, <laughs> they're about political themes and happenings in the context of big world events like taking over Rome and in the case of Julius Caesar. And his comedies are about love, and they are usually set outside politics, sometimes outside the entire world, <laughs> like in the woods. I mean, I'm thinking about Midsummer's Night Dream. But with Romeo and Juliet, we seem to be seeing both. In a sense, uh, it's not political, like there are no wars going on, there are no kings or generals, but there is drama, and there is the context of some politics in the story. And it's not uh, us versus an outside invader, uh, it's an ancient grudge, it's family stuff, and stuff that in some sense didn't really need to happen, or maybe it did, it's fate. I mean, <laughs> There's that mention. Uh, but it seems like there is a political context to this story. I think that's true. And here we're getting into some good stuff and things that we need to think about as we look forward. At the time of Shakespeare, love and marriage looked very differently than it did today. And in a sense, love was political. Gary, tell us a little bit about how Shakespearean audiences would have thought about marriage and love in a political sense during their day? Well, as you can guess, it's a little different. Uh, for one thing, uh, women were nothing uh, in the world. They were literally property, and you could fall in love with the person you were married to, but uh, that would 
just be lucky and definitely not a requirement. I mean, women had uh, zero way of supporting themselves except through marriage. So this was the main concern of any loving father. And you uh, legitimized and created higher social rank through marriage. And it was uh, actually legal to get married if you were a girl at the age of 12 and for a boy at the age of 14. Uh, However, having said that, that didn't happen very often. Uh, Most people waited, and the average age for a girl to get married was between 20 and 29. And that's not all that different from uh, America today, where the average age is 27. Although I will say, for our British audiences, uh, you guys have changed a bit. The average age for marriage in England is 37. Uh, the main difference, di- yeah, the main difference between marriage today and marriage in uh, Elizabethan England is that today we do marry for love and not for politics or social status. Although a few would, <laughs> for sure, I think that is one idea that really resonates today with so many across time uh, and different places. How many children fall in love with someone who is not in their social status? either because of money differences, religious differences, racial differences. I was at Kroger during the quarantine, and a couple of former students uh, came in, and we ran into each other. They were getting groceries for a picnic, and we got to talking. I asked them what they were up to, and they just flat out said, "Miss Shriver, we're Romeo and Juliet. And what they meant, not that they were you know, going to drink poison or anything <laughs> like that, Good. but that their families weren't accepting their relationship uh, for social, political reasons, however you want to view it in the traditional sense. So you can see that this play has been challenging traditional norms of marriage and relationships that is, in some sense, even modern today. And Shakespeare was deliberately challenging those boundaries. So getting back to the love thing, uh, I would assume then that Shakespeare dropping Juliet's age down to 13 would have caught the attention of the audiences. And they would have been a little bit grossed out, or that could be their reaction, or you know, think, oh, that's just wrong. And that attitude uh, being too much, that's just too far. I think that is exactly the right reaction that he was intending with the audience. The father was trading in his daughter for political reasons. He wasn't taking care of his daughter. He was using her, which brings us back to politics. The play does not start off talking about love. It starts off talking about politics. True. And we begin uh, Romeo and Juliet just like we did in Julius Caesar. And that's with common people. In uh, Julius Caesar, uh, there were working guys out partying in this play. And they're servants. And one thing that uh, I thought was weird is that that they have British names. <laughs> they do. <laughs> Whereas the noble families have Italian names. Explain that. I don't really know uh, why that's the case. But since we're moving into the play, we may need to back, bounce back to the prologue later. But we will see that these servants are going to show that this grudge is kind of stale. It's not really a big heartfelt deal anymore. The prologue calls it ancient, and there's no explanation for it, not even with the discussion of the servants. They fight because they want to fight. They're just talking, and it's very silly. It reminds me of teenagers in the halls at school, and he says, A dog of that house shall move me to stand. I will take the wall of any man of maid of Montagues. Uh, then they start talking about thrusting the maidens to the walls. I mean, this is... It's a little, it's a little bit vulgar, yeah. but it, you know, it reminds me of the kind of talk that back home in Belo Horizonte, we have two major soccer teams, and you're either Atlético or you're Cruzeiro, and people would fight. They would fight literally in the games, and it, the only reason was you were on the other team. So that's kind of the the spirit of the feud here in this town. It's just trash talk, and they're talking about their naked weapons, these are double entendres, and some of them which are sexual in nature, and they're going to talk about biting their thumbs at each other, which basically means flipping each other off. And it, it does kind of ring silly. You want to read the lines? Let's start and just read that little bit. My naked weapon is out. Quirrell, I will back thee. How? Turn thy back and run? Fear me not. No, Mary, I fear thee. Let us take the law of our sides. Let them begin. I will frown as I pass by and let them take it as they list. (laughs) 
nay, as they dare, I will bite my thumb at them, which is a disgrace to them. So these two guys are talking about what they're going to do to the other right. guys that come by. Do you bite your thumb at us, sir? I do bite my thumb, sir. Do you bite your thumb at us, sir? Now he's going to turn to Gregory and he's going to say, Is the law on our side if I say A? No. No, sir. I don't bite my thumb at you, but I bite my thumb, sir. So he's flipping him off, but he's saying, I'm just flipping off. I'm not saying it's at you. (laughs) So do you quarrel, sir? Quarrel, sir? No, sir. But if you do, sir, I am for you. I serve as a good man as you. No better? Well, sir. Say better. Here comes one of my master's kinsmen. Yes, better, sir. You lie. Draw if you be men. Gregory, remember thy washing blow. And, of course, they fight. And so you can see there there was no reason for that. They're just... Did you bite your thumb at me? Right. Yeah, that kind of thing. And a Benvolio. <laughs> didn't like their attitude. Benvolio goes, part fools, put up your sword. You know not what you do. And, of course, Tybalt is going to enter. And then, of course, fighting breaks out again. So you kind of see what I mean. It's uh, We're introduced to the two main characters right here, besides Romeo and Juliet, uh, that have had their names changed from the original script. So in Arthur Brooks... Uh, original version, Benvolio and Tybalt had different names, and they're changed for a reason. Benvolio. Ben means good. That's the root of it, and Shakespeare's telling us this is the good guy. And then you have this guy named Tybalt, and his name comes from a different play that was really popular, and we don't have time to get into it, but just suffice to say that in that other play, he's kind of a rat, and everybody knew this was the name of a, of a not a nice guy. So we're making a distinction right here at the very beginning that we have one guy that's really good and one guy that's really bad, angry, kind of for no reason. Well, we've been rambling, and I know we need to end for the day. Uh, We will drop into the plot next week, and we'll gain some ground. But Romeo is going to be dropped, and I want to end with this, into this political world but he doesn't want it. And lots of young people don't want to be dropped into the political world that they find themselves. He doesn't care about anybody's feud. He doesn't have an interest or a sense of who's right and who's wrong, like Benvolio or Tybalt. Uh, When we read his lines a short while later, after the prince comes in and breaks up the spite with the servants, everyone else is worrying about the outside world, But Romeo has locked himself up into a room, and he has made for himself, as he quotes, an artificial knight, which, by the way, that's a motif in the play. But he's in the dark, hiding away from everything, pining over his love for Rosalind, which, by the way, is a cousin of Juliet. He's all sad. Benvolio asks him what's wrong, and he has this to say. Let's read this. Alas, that love whose view is muffled still, should without eyes see pathways to his will. Where shall we dine? Oh me, what fray was here? Yet tell me not, for I have heard it all. Here's much to do with hate, but more with love. Why then, O brawling love, O loving hate, O anything of nothing first create, O heavy lightness, serious vanity, misshapen chaos of well-seeming forms, Feather of lead, bright smoke, cold fire, sick health, still waking sleep. That is not what it is. This love feel I that feel no love in this. Dost thou not laugh? So, of course, Benvolio is laughing. And what he's expressing is the feeling that people have when they have romantic love. There's so many oxymorons in there inside his heart. Brawling love, loving hate, feather of lead, bright smoke, cold fire, sick health. That's what it feels when you're 14 and in love. <laughs> read the other one. The, read the next, his next line. Why, such is love's transgression. Griefs of mine own lie heavy in my breast, which thou wilt propagate to have it pressed. With more of thine, this love that thou hast shown doth add more grief to too much of mine own. Love is a smoke raised with the fume of sighs, being purged, a fire sparkling in lover's eyes, being vexed, a sea nourished with lover's fears, 
What is it else? A madness most discreet, a choking gall, and a preserving sweet. Farewell, my cause. <laughs> and so he is describing it. It's a smoke raised with the fumes of sigh. It's a fire sparkling. It's a sea nerd. It's a madness. It's a choking gall, a preserving sweet. And of course, this makes Romeo a comedic character. It's all the end of the world for him. And really, it's Rosalind won't sleep with him. That's what it boils down to. He says this, She is rich in beauty, only poor that when she dies, with beauty dies her store. Benvolio is going to say, She hath sworn that she will live chaste. And of course, Romeo is going to answer him and say, She hath. And in that, sparing makes huge waste. It's such a waste for her to be chaste, in other words. For beauty starved with her severity, cuts beauty off from all posterity. She is too fair, too wise, wisely too fair to merit bliss by making me despair. She hath forsworn to love, and in that vow do I live dead that live to tell it now. Well... (laughs) Benvolio gives him the best advice ever, you know. Uh, forget about her. Uh, Romeo asks how, and, and he says, By giving liberty unto thine eyes, examine other beauties. And, uh, and of course, scene one ends with him off to the chase. And the Barney character, uh, if you like that show, How I Met Your Mother, you know, let me get you a girl. <laughs> True. And here's the point that I want to make by closing out today Romeo's a kid, he's an average kid, he's not ambitious. He's clearly not super virtuous, as we can tell from those lines. But he's definitely not evil, and he's someone we can laugh at. But this, uh, we're told in the prologue, is not going to be a comedy. And this story will not end in marriage. It's a tragedy. It's about someone who is noble. Uh, And so we have to ask, why do we love this play? Well, here's my thought. And I'm going to end this episode with this one. We love this play because one of the big ideas and I want us to think about, and it pervades this whole play, is that there is nobility in all of us, no matter how we're born or our station in life. And there really is. And I think this is a true idea. But where does this nobility come from? And how do we awaken what's noble about ourselves? And somehow, nobility is awakened in us with this connection to love. It is love, and in this case, eros, romantic love. And maybe it broadens out farther than that, but in this play, it doesn't. It's eros that turns Romeo into a hero. We're just average, but when we're in love, we can dream great things. We can fight great fights. We can stand up to great authorities. And in the end, we don't even care how it ends, because if it was for love, it was worth it. And that is the sweet, endearing idea that we're going to think about for the next five acts. The language is hard, no doubt. It will definitely take us more than the two hours Shakespeare promises it takes to read the play and the prologue. But if we too have patience, what here shall miss, our toils shall strive to mend. To quote the bard. And on that note, we will end. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, If you like our podcast, be sure and tell a friend. And uh, check us out on our Instagram page, our Facebook page, and also our howtolovelitpodcast.com page, where we have lots of information regarding the books that have changed the world and changed us. Peace out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.